Before I hopped on the show, the missus was watching House Party on Crave, which is great because I just signed up for Crave. So, I mean, they were they were doing uh, they were doing an awful lot of programming for Black History Month. I, it's, it's certainly not a coincidence, but um, they're kind of stretching the bounds a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I appreciate that they're showing stuff like Bessie and Twelve Years a Slave. But when you get to like House Party, I'm like, are we pushing this? No, no. House Party in the '90s was uh, influential cinema. You know, you you also you also need. I think the one thing that we forget about when it comes to to Black History Month is you need stories that are are just showing black people being normal people, like having silly comedies as well. The funny thing is, it's certainly a time capsule in a document when it comes to style, right? Like style and music for sure. Sadly, in, yeah. some, in some respects, but 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 <laughs> you know it's it's important. Um, and you're you're telling me there's four of them, eh? Wait, no, you said there's five. Yes, yeah, there was uh, there's a new, I guess one that according to IMDb, there's one from 2013 that looks like it's a an extension of the franchise. So Ken and Play are still in it, but they're not like the the focal point. I, I imagine it's sublime really I, I i have nothing but confidence in this franchise uh i'll i'll let you uh i'll let you take that bullet and get back to me i welcome. i will indeed <laughs> I, I can hear the excitement in your voice welcome to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil in toronto canada you are listening to episode 255 of the matinee cast it's a movie loving podcast of my movie loving website thematinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective Today we're doing something a little bit different. Ordinarily on this show, I like to space out the guests a bit, give different voices a chance to share their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions. Once in a while, though, an event comes along and makes me want to double back and prolong a previous conversation, which is what we're going to do today. You see, this winter, a film has been released into our midst, and it contains within it several ties back to a film that we talked about here on this show last autumn. So I thought it could do us all some good to further that episode, complete with the same guests. So folks, please welcome back a dear friend, a strong voice in film criticism and film going, direct from Cinema Axis, That Shelf, and the Changing Reels podcast. Courtney Small is here. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for for coming back. You know, it's I, I know it's it's still crazy times having two small kids at home and trying to work at home and and everything. So I really appreciate the time. Just one crazy routine transition to another crazy routine. So it's it's like a it's like a series of never ending Mondays, basically, right? Pretty much, pretty much. Sounds like a hoot. On episode 255, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently than what you're used to. We're not going to do Know Your Enemy, and the other side is going to be quite truncated because we're going to kind of stick to the main goods of the episode, which is Judas and the Black Messiah. But before we get to that, we do want to kind of warm up a little bit. Um, Courtney, what have you been watching lately, uh, you know, given that we're all stuck at home and kind of have nothing else to do but watch? I guess the most recent thing that I watched was Raya and the Last Dragon, which is dropping on Disney Plus on March 5th. And it's a tale from co-directed by the director of uh, Blind Spotting, which was a great film from, I guess, maybe two, two years ago. I guess it's probably his, I think this is his first foray into the animated filmmaking. Because he also had another film come out that played at uh, TIFF Next Wave called Summertime, which was more of an Altman-esque kind of rambling comedy mm. about young 20-somethings in, in Los Angeles, which is, which is a lot of fun. So he's, he's very much diversifying his, uh, 
his palette. But this film focuses on a a young woman named Rhea who essentially is living in a dystopian world um, and has to travel around and collect these fragmented pieces of a, a former dragon sphere. Um, and in order to get those fragments, she has to go to five different regions that were in the past were one kind of harmonious society and then things happened that everyone kind of went their own way. So the film really hits it over the head about the world being divided and living in divided times and having to trust, like the word trust will you're going to hear a lot. So the animation is, is great. The action, there's a lot of great action sequences. I, I, I did enjoy the film. It's a, it's a really entertaining film, but if you're looking for um, subtlety, this is not that film. Cause when you, every time I see ads for it now, all I think is trust, trust. Cause they mentioned trust, like almost every other sentence they have to throw in trust. You need to trust each other. We, we need to learn how to trust one another. And it's like, okay, I get, I get it. I get it. Even for little kids, I think it's a little <laughs> much, but, but you know, it is, it is enjoyable. I will say that. I feel like this one is more Wreck-It Ralph frozen level. Oh, okay. Um, so you're saying it leans towards their better stuff. Like not, it's, yes, it's not going to yeah. set the world on fire, but it's not bad. No, no, no. It's not, it's not bad. Um, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. You know, you're going to get shades of, Moana you can get shades of a lot of films you can get shades of like how to train your dragon a lot of different things but I think this one works the characters are interesting Aquafina plays the the dragon in this this film and she's basically just doing the Aquafina Aquafina right stuff but it's there's a lot of interesting side characters that they they throw in that are are quite amusing and entertaining and as I said outside of like the the heavy beating over your head message. It's actually a really fun kind of adventure film. So I think okay. people will like it. I mean, it looks like it's got a pretty good cast. Kelly Marie Tran, Cassie Steele, Gemma Chan. Um, you know, you mentioned Aquafina already. Daniel Day Kim is in this movie. The, the whole Disney releasing their stuff to Disney Plus while we're all locked down is going to be an interesting experiment. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be interested to see how it's been going. I don't think they're fully committed to it because otherwise we would have been paying for soul back at Christmas. Um, you know, the, the same way that they charged us for Mulan and whenever it was in, in August and like, you know, they've already got like two Marvel movies in the can, right. That they can trot out on this thing as well. I'm, I'm getting more and more curious as to what Disney wants to do, given that they've got this delivery device that actually has quite a wide customer base. I've been, torn with how they're releasing things because the live action Mulan wasn't a, a great film, but it seems like they are more willing to dump the, the films that fall, fall under the quote unquote diversity label. Cause if you really think about it, soul, um, even though Soul's not necessarily a black film, but they're not willing to release um, black widow yet. Yeah. But you get Seoul, you get Mulan, you get this film, which is heavily influenced by Chinese culture or Asian culture, I should say. I haven't really seen too many of their kind of traditional films with with predominantly white leads getting dropped on there. Like, yes, they have the Marvel shows, but those were always going to be shows. Yeah. You know, once yeah. when you start getting to the movie, even Warner Brothers, like another, they're like, oh, we're going to drop Wonder Woman. Yeah. As controversial as that is, they're willing to drop the big guns. And and go through, but Disney because they own everything. They're like, no, we're just going to wait. Right? Yeah. And 
See, Black we, Widow could be horrible for all we know. Yeah. They're like, we already know we have your money. We are just going to wait until you're ready to give it over. Um, well, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll definitely check out the the other one, though. Um, well, a yes. movie that yeah. I watched recently, and I actually do know you've seen it because you covered it um, You covered it for Real Asian a few years ago, is um, the first feature film by Kathy Yan, Dead Pigs, dropped onto Mubi last week. Oh, Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I count myself a fan of Kathy Yon, um, Birds of Prey, that we talked about on your show um, last summer, uh, is, is, was one of my, my most enjoyable films last year. And I really wanted to catch up with more of her work. Um, for people who might not have seen Dead Pigs, if you can imagine Pixar's Up mixed with a Robert Altman film all set in China, then you kind of have an inkling as to what you're getting with dead pigs really and truly Altman-esque or if you're younger, you know, early Paul Thomas Anderson that had several movies that had several plot lines all converging together. Um, you know, and it's, it's a story that involves a pig farmer, a busboy, a salon owner, uh, an architect and this jaded rich girl and everything just kind of eventually collides together in the end. Um, it's primarily about, a woman who is living in a house that's in the middle of this huge development that's happening, like these massive condos that are kind of going to be mimicking um, the the cathedral in in Spain, uh, in but you know placed into China so that you can live there and I guess pretend you're living in Spain. Um, and she doesn't want to leave, so hers is the last house standing while they are trying to clear the site around her. Um, I I was I was happy as can be I, you know I was happy as a pig and shit I guess I could say and, and I didn't really know what to expect because I knew you know like I, I didn't expect something like birds of prey obviously um but it was my real introduction to Kathy Yan as a filmmaker watching that film I was excited to see what she was going to do with birds of prey uh, because there's a lot that goes on in that film there's a lot of interesting stylistic choices and it all worked for me. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those films where I, I walked with a smile on my face. Like, you know, the characters were interesting, entertaining. If I remember correctly, there's like even a musical number at one point, like there's oh, yeah. just a lot, a lot that goes on in that film, but yet it, it, it all works. So uh, yeah, I'm happy that you were able to catch up with that one. I'm almost ashamed to admit that I, I signed up for movie just to see this and I took advantage of like their seven day free trial. And then I'm like, I'm out. I just <laughs> I, I wanted to see this movie. I saw this movie. It's not available on hard copy anywhere, not available streaming anywhere else. I'm just going to do this free trial for one week. I watched a few other things actually as well while I was at it. Like I, I watched um, Miranda July's last movie, The Future. I watched that on movie. There was another one called Butter on the Latch, which is this kind of strange pseudo horror um, like it, okay. it's a it's a trippy movie. I wouldn't call it like full on. It's a horror the same way that it comes at night is a horror. But butter on the latch was oh, also. I haven't seen that one yet. Okay, I'll Bur- put them both down. Yeah. Um. So I, I did a and I I did a little bit of spelunking around movie before I canceled my free um, trial just because I wanted to see Kathy Yan's other film. But there we go. We've we've been seeing some good stuff that you can find online either for free if you sign up for movie or subscribe to movie or on disney plus so you don't have to um worry about uh, leaving your house you can ride this thing out a little bit longer but we have a bigger movie to talk about come on back right after this we are going to talk about judas and the black messiah right after this I took the money. I to drink. 
Judas and the Black Messiah is directed by Shaka King. The screenplay is by King as well and Will Burson. It's based on a story by Burson King, Kenny Lucas, and Keith Lucas. It stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Danique Fishback, Martin Sheen, and others. The Judas of the story is a man named Bill O'Neill. That's Lakeith Stanfield. Early in the film, he was picked up by the cops for carjacking and impersonating an officer of the law. During his interrogation, he is offered a deal by an FBI G-man named Roy Mitchell. That's Jesse Plemons. He can remain a free man if he can provide information on another free man the FBI wants much, much more. That other free man is Illinois chairman of the Black Panthers, Fred Hampton. That's Daniel Kaluuya. Given that the film takes place in 1968, one could say that Hampton is at the peak of his power. A clear voice, a candidate to be a true leader in the civil rights struggle that has already lost men like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. It doesn't take a genius to understand that the American government sees such a powerful black voice as a threat, and it wants to contain the threat. This is where O'Neill comes into play as the man, and I do mean the man, the man's most covert and conniving weapons against the civil rights movement. So the reason we're here today is because of where we already went on another day, specifically our previous conversation about Aaron Sorkin's trial of the Chicago 7. In that discussion, Mr. Small, you and I continually came back to the same point, that in the West, the true struggle isn't just about one race versus another, but also about a system of justice put in place specifically to keep one of them down. So pop quiz hotshot, this time in Judas and the Black Messiah. What are we seeing that underlines that point and perhaps proves it better than the trial of Chicago 7? It, it proves it differently. I don't know if it proves it better. Okay. Because um, I, I was torn on this film. I, I know it has been receiving raves, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I feel like what I like about this film is the performances are outstanding. Um, Kalula and, and Stanfield are, are, are phenomenal in this film. And visually, it, I think what King does with this um, film is, you know, the, some of the shots that he takes, the angles, it's a, it's a wonderful looking film. I had problems, though, with how it dealt with the story. And even, the, like, I felt in many ways that this film focused so much on hitting key moments that it doesn't quite tell Hampton's story the way it probably should have. The question I walked away with was, what did I really learn about Fred Hampton? At the end not of this much. film, but not much. The man, he's essentially a, a passenger, literally and figuratively, in what would be his own story. Mm-hmm. And I also said, well, what did I learn about um, Will, William O'Neill outside of he was an informant? Not much. Um, and I, I struggled with this one because I, I really wanted to love this film. But by the end of it, I was, I was kind of torn. So in terms of a system of justice, I think it does... A, a solid job of hitting the key historical moments, but I almost felt like it didn't go hard enough on Hoover and the G-men. Hmm. You know, there, there's, and we can get into this. I, that's just my initial, initial thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, to, to answer my own question, I think the one thing I thought that it really underscored uh, more than Chicago seven is 
There's a quote that comes up at one point, Jesse Plemons' uh, character. He says, you can't cheat your way to equality. And he means it like he means it as a threat. But the thing is, is that that's exactly what the government is doing. Like they're, they're, they're cheating their way to giving up and they're cheating their way to, to conceding ground. Um, that I think, you know, we talked about how in the American justice system, there is incompetence and there is just almost buffoonery. This movie, I think, did an even better job of showing how there is deep corruption that will infiltrate into any movement that you can think of. Yeah, I could see, I could see that point. Um, there's always, but I mean, I would say even though with the trial of Chicago Seven, we did see how there were several officers that infiltrated that movement. Anytime a movement gets to a certain level, it makes it more susceptible. You know, the target becomes a, a lot bigger. And there were, I will say that there were some very interesting aspects to this film in terms of how it's how not only O'Neill was meant sent in to infiltrate, but you learned that, you know, he wasn't the only one. Yeah. Um, they, they briefly touch on the ways that how they were trying to manipulate even outside of um, having men on the inside. Like, there's a scene where Fred Hampton is meeting with a- another organization in Chicago, and they're reading out a flyer that the FBI had written to basically kind of frame Fred Hampton. So to make it sound like he was spouting all this hatred and stuff. And you even see the scene where they're kind of typing up the thing. And that's something that they did a lot. They did that to Martin Luther King. They did that to a lot of people. They, and I, and I wish they kind of delved into that aspect a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, I also felt though that through Jesse Plemons character, they tried almost to, sympathize with him a bit and maybe sympathize is not the right word but there's times when he and o'neill are are talking and early on we see that he's kind of chummy chummy with him and o'neill mentioned references about how he felt like there was a almost like a, a mentorship style relationship between the two but i never got that sense because outside of the few scenes early on where he invites him over to his house and tells him to sit down drink my cognac most of the time when he's dealing with O'Neill, he's using power and influence. Give me this information. I don't know about that. Okay, well, I'll send you back to jail. Yeah. But yet, when you see him dealing with his fellow FBI people, Hoover, the men that are writing these fictitious um, pamphlets, then he, you see him kind of get a, well, I don't know if we should be doing this. And I couldn't, I struggled with that character because when he, Clemens is playing just stone cold evil. He's, he's fantastic. But then I couldn't figure out why were they trying to make him somewhat more sympathetic because they were almost giving him more layers than they were giving O'Neill. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, this is the second time we've seen between the two films This is the second time we've seen a white character supposedly struggle with his conscience, right? Like this is very much, Mm cut from the same cloth as the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character as the district attorney in, in Chicago 7, where they're like, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't right. This isn't moral, yada, 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 yada. And yet when the chips are down, they still do what they're told to do. You know, like, so that, that's, the stra- that's the strange thing is that it doesn't take this allyship nearly far enough. Now that may be emblematic of the times, 
and and show like just how little allyship there was going on in the 1960s. But within the course of the story, it's messy at best. And again, I know it's based off of real events. And I know that, you know, you had this, the shootout at the, the Panthers headquarters, which really happened. And the cops burned them down. And also you had the cops that were shot at the, I think it was like the, the diner, um, those events. But even how the film frames those moments, like a, a character like Jimmy, I think it's Jimmy Palmer that shot the two officers at the, when they were kind of um, frisking people in that, in that store. Mm-hmm. How, in many ways, when, they frame the violence coming from the Panthers. You don't really get to know too much about Palmer. You don't get to know too much about um, Jake Winters. So when they end up assaulting officers with their weapons, the, the reactionary violence almost feels justified in an odd way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yes, the, the cops were being uh, abusing their authority and power. But they weren't killing anyone, whereas these Panthers came, killed. So when they get like, there was something very strange about how we got to see their deaths almost, you know, very visceral. Mm -hmm. When the the cops and the FBI kill Palmer in the hospital, we never see that. We just see that he's taken away. Right. And even something subtle as that, it kind of if you're coming to this not knowing anything about the Panthers, you'll walk away and go, well, they, you know, they might be a little, the cops were bad. Yes. But they, these people did these horrible things. It's like, yeah, but you're, you're missing the whole context in terms of what pushed them to the brink. And yeah. I, and I feel like with this film, partly in terms of how the narrative is told because you have Hampton as, as I said, a passenger in the story, but there's also the period where Hampton's away. They try and cram in these other side characters that they don't fully develop. So when Hampton is meeting Jake Winter's mom later on, that scene held no emotional weight for me. And as much as she's like, well, you know, my son was more than a cop killer. So I'm sure he was, but we never really got much about your son outside of him crying for his friend, him losing it and, and and shooting a cop. Like there's a lot of fragmented pieces, but because King had to put in these real events that happened, just question, you know, if it was really as impactful. Like, it, you could still reference those things, but give me more about Hampton. Give me more about O'Neill because their time together is fascinating. But also, I want to know about O'Neill's time away from from Hampton. It's either him with Hampton or him with with Agent Mitchell. And I don't, you don't know anything about his life. So when they show at the very end. Um, the clip from Eye on the Prize, too, and he's talking about, well, you know, his sons or his, you know, they ask him something like, what do you tell your sons? And he goes, well, that's for them to, I forget the exact quote, but it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. He had an entire life outside. He was, you know, there was there was more to him than just those two. So, yeah, he like he, he he lived another 20 years before, you know, before things happened to him. And that's the thing, like he outlived this entire movement, he outlived the Panthers, um, you know, which is, it's kind of surprising that he managed to get away and, you know, like nobody found out that that's that, I mean, that like, that could be a movie all its own His mm-hmm. his, his, his guilt, C- certainly right before he's going to hand, um, 
Hampton over to get killed. Like in that last moment between them, they really play on the Jesus metaphor. Um, you can really see the guilt weighing on O'Neill's shoulders and the way that Lakeith Stanfield plays him. But it, the rest of the time, he's just kind of continually moving through it and you never really see the guilt of everything, not just the fact that of the Panthers, because he wasn't in the Panthers to begin with. In the story, he joined them to get close to Hampton to turn specifically to turn him over. Um, but just as a black man in America in 1968, this is a deeply, deeply traitorous act. In many ways, he was more afraid of being figured out because of him being a car thief. Yeah. You know, and that and that great scene with Rival Gang than he was when he's playing kind of both sides. And it's, you know, even if he didn't believe in the movement, I like I I got the sense from this film that he liked Hampton as a man. He didn't necessarily believe in in the movement, which is which is fine. But there's something about the way it doesn't quite delve into his guilt further. And I think part of this also has to do with the absence of the aftermath of Hampton's demise, because the film essentially tacks on a lot of information at the end in the, in the, just before the credits. Oh yeah. And one of the fascinating things, at least for me about Hampton's death was not just how the FBI had the layouts and came in guns blazing, but what happened in the aftermath is also important aspect to tell because they went out of their way to use media to paint this whole scenario of what happened. Like they literally restaged the events for, for television cameras to show, well, we came through here, you know, like just did this whole production to cover their tracks, to make it seem like everyone, you know, they, there was a big shootout and the FBI did what they had to do. But the film doesn't mention that, you know, there were several investigative journalists. The Black Panthers opened up the crime scene to the community because it was it was it hadn't been sealed off. So the people in the community could come and see what was happening. And they could all see that out of the let's say there's like 40 bullets that went 39 of them were going in one direction. There's so much to this story. But I think part of it is because the film spends so much time on characters that don't quite do anything to to make our understanding better i think that's one of the downfalls of the movie is there are a lot of people around hampton and o'neill um but beyond deborah johnson uh hampton's girlfriend i really couldn't nail down who was doing what, what they meant, what, like what their, what their ranks were. Like it's, it's a a lot of it is just kind of skipped through. It's a challenge, right? Because anytime you get um, a story where you're basing it on real life, the desire is there to tell the whole damn thing and to give each major event a few minutes, but then you get this watered down history so the flip side of it is to do what somebody like Ava DuVernay did in Selma and contain your story to one action. Okay, we can do that, but then you really have to go deeply into that one action and give everybody agency. And I think I'm warmer on this movie than you are, but I will totally agree that the movie never really goes below the surface with anybody 
Um, and that might be to its detriment. I, I really want to like this film. <laughs> I, when it when it started, I'm like, I am here. It's clicking. And then it got to a point, I guess, just maybe before he got sent to jail on some trumped up charges where things just weren't kind of connecting. And similar to you, if I wasn't taking notes, I wouldn't have known who um, Jimmy Palmer was or Jake Winters because one minute one person is doing something I'm like, wait, who's that guy? Yeah. Oh, who's you're crying over who? Who's it again? And I had to shake my head. Oh, right, that person. And uh, Judy Harmon, the character of Judy Harmon, played by D- Dominique Thorne, is you know one of the great cinematic badasses in this. Like, just you know, one of the few female characters in this film who doesn't really get that many lines. And I know she's supposed to, I guess, represent the the female perspective for this, but you can't have a film about the Black Panthers and have the women be either silent badasses or the love interests because women played such a key role in that organization. Like they, they there was at one point there were more women in the organization than there were men, you right. know, at a, I guess most powerful. And yet if you watch this film, you would not get that, that sense at all. Like I feel, I agree. You can't tell everything you can, you know, pick and choose what you want, but if you're going to do a film about Fred Hampton, let me know about Fred Hampton. You know, this man was 21 when he died. Mm-hmm. And judging by, even by this film, I wouldn't have known he was, like, if I was just to watch it without knowing that he was 21, up until the final credits, be like, oh, yeah, he, I guess Kula was supposed to be playing a 21-year-old, right? Like, I mean, that's the other thing, too, is somebody actually pointed it out on Twitter. And if I can find it, I will include the original tweet in the show notes. The age discrepancy here really needs to be underlined because when Lindsay and I are watching movies, if it's a movie that's set in high school, she'll often point out, oh, these people are way too old to be teenagers. And I'll usually say, well, yeah, but that's because these are teenagers that are talking about having sex and or having sex. And if they were teenagers, we would not want to watch that. But this is the opposite of that. This is something where a man did something incredible by the age of 21. And 20, you know, you and I are both double that now in terms of age and that's kind of inconceivable to me to be that age like yeah. I, I don't know what you were doing at 21 but i sure as hell wasn't doing anything like that you know i'm still trying to figure out something to do that's yeah no. yeah um you know to you don't need to cast a 21 year old in the part but you need to get closer than kaluya's age which i think he's about 32 um and that's a big jump you know, like 21 year old on film, they don't seem that young, really and truly. But the fact of the matter is, they're much younger than a 30 year old playing this. That really would have lent a little bit more um, awe to the fact that a 21 year old was able to get up in front of a room, speak the way that Fred Hampton d- did, and that even that Daniel Kaluuya does in this role and command the respect of an entire community. Young black men are always seen as adults. They're always seen much older than they are, right? So when you have, you know, someone like Trayvon or the countless other young men that get killed, they always get um, talked about in the term of, well, they were, you know, almost like they were men. These were potentially dangerous men. So even if you were to say that he was 21, but in the eyes of, 
the FBI, he, he looked like a grown man, like David Kalua, I would get that, but they don't even really acknowledge it. And, I, and again, this is not to not Kalua, because I think he, his performance is, is fantastic in this film in terms of the way how he delivers the speeches, the way how he embraces the quiet moments. I could get the sense of why people would be swayed by Hampton. Mm-hmm. You know, why a person like O'Neill will walk into a, a dangerous situation and is already thinking run or fight. And Kalula's like, put the guns down. I don't care if we're outnumbered. I'm going to walk into the you know, enemy turf and we're going to have a conversation, right? Like there's a lot of great moments, but then at the same time, I don't, we don't get enough of, of him outside of the, the orator. Like, you know, he, he gives great speeches, but I wanted more of those quiet moments. Like, you know, there's a great scene where I think he and uh, Deborah, they first cement their their flirtation and their relationship. And it's a nice little quiet scene where you get a glimpse of, of the human side of him. And then yeah. I guess, again, when he's speaking to the slain man's mother, uh, but again, that's more the mother telling things, but we don't get anything else outside of that. It's like, yes, the speeches are, are wonderful. You know, the, you're going to walk away saying, I am a revolutionary as a, as a slogan. You know, it'll be on several T-shirts probably yeah. in the summer, but... Yeah. Did you really get the man behind the words? So when we talked about Trial of Chicago Seven, we talked about how it was a film that wasn't quite as good as the sum of its parts. That you know, like when you mm-hmm. took this piece or this piece or this performance or that shot and you looked at them individually, they were pretty good. But then when you put it all together to try to underline its its point, um, it didn't always get there. For a film that isn't exactly tense, this movie does create some amazing tension several times over. Yes. A lot of it hanging on O'Neill and wondering when is he going to get found out? You know, like he there's this like at least three times where it seems like he's just like a fraction away from getting busted, whether it's, you know, one of the the crowns who's like ready to out him when there's this this sit down going on or whether it's the fact that the um that uh, Mitchell comes to one of the rallies and is like in the crowd, you know, it, it's, you're, you're wondering like when that blade is going to drop. Yes. I, I agree with that. I, you know, the Mitchell scene at the rally, I, I thought was really well done. Cause I think that was one of the few times where you kind of see the, the paranoia mm-hmm. on his face. Like, like Lakeith Stanfield does a lot with his his facial expressions his his body language another scene is when he's in the car with um with judy and they start questioning about how he got this fancy car yeah yeah and how could you hotwire a car when everything in the car is still intact you know Mm -hmm. and you've got keys for this car that like those moments were were really well done and where trial of chicago seven failed in its kind of jumbleness and its rush for like a kind of kumbaya style ending this film has a, a lot of really great moments i just i feel like you either make it lo- a half hour longer yeah and and put in a little bit more human side to o'neill and hampton because regardless of if you if you're a judas or not there's there's layers to that there's complexity so you either add in a, a, a half hour where you give us a bit more about those two men or you you cut out some of the, the the key moments because they had no problem just kind of referencing Bobby Seals getting tied up in in court. Yeah, you know they, it was kind of like a throwaway. Like there's a couple of throwaway lines to some other things that happened. 
But I'm like, okay, well then you could easily have cut a couple of these things and still reference that it happened and yeah. give us a little bit more. For the fact that we now know that the two events were happening concurrently in Chicago, this film just completely sidesteps the, the Chicago Seven. Like we know from the previous film that Hampton was involved and that, you know, like he was basically like playing advisor to, to Seal according to that movie. It's a non factor in this movie. Mm-hmm. And again, that adds another perspective. So even if even if you had one or two scenes where he's saying, you know, I've got to get down to the courthouse or showing that he's he's juggling several things. It would be because there's a moment where he's in prison in this film mm-hmm. and he sees a, a man that's been been roughed up by the wardens or the jail guards. And you get the sense that he's doing some type of organizing in prison. Mm-hmm. And the, you know the fact that he's in prison makes him an even bigger threat because he will get mythic status in the the eyes of of Hoover. But you see him slip someone a piece of paper. But outside of that, you don't get anything else. And it's like, oh, so clearly there was stuff going on. You know, he's struggling to to keep it together, but he's clearly organizing. But we see none of that. What did you think of um, Martin? sheen in this film and their the the portrayal of hoover it's weird because we're at this point now where we've had several portrayals of hoover on film sheen plays him kind of rightfully so as a monster At, at this stage in history i don't really think that there's a whole lot of redemption for j edgar hoover in terms of what he was doing and how he was doing it the 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 amount of judicial overreach by the fbi is just off the chart. And I think there's a lot of stuff that we may never know. So I don't really think that he's the kind of guy that we need to play with nuance. And and Sheen, I think, just kind of leans into that. Like, he plays him as a boogeyman. And just in case anybody is in doubt as to why it is they are going after Fred Hampton, you know, he spells it right out. And he says, you know, we put Huey in prison and look at how far that got us. So clearly that's not an option. And it's just one of those moments where my kind of back to my original question, the struggle being one race of another versus the system. This is like him playing it as a monster and saying the monster controls the system. It's clumsy for sure. Like I see where you're going with this, but at the same time, like it really wants to wail on the fact that to this day, and especially in the sixties, the system was in the hands of the monsters. It can be argued that even though it was in the hands of the monsters by our eyes and by Hampton's eyes, by most of America, it was in the hands of the heroes. Oh, sure. Right? Like we, I think one of the things that we forget about this era is that, you know, everyone knows that the, the Panthers were, were villainized, but Martin Luther King was considered a terrorist in, in yeah. Hoover's eyes. Like yeah. they, he was not beloved and quoted by the all the politicians, you know, that you, you see now on, on both sides every time it's Martin Luther King Day. Like a lot of them did not like him at all. They didn't like the, the civil rights movement. They didn't want things disrupted. So the FBI was was seen as like, I don't know, I guess they were revered like how Americans revere the military. The most chilling aspect of this film is when um Mitchell tells O'Neill that we had a plant in there who basically accused someone else of being an informant. 
like we had our informant accuse another person of being an informant so that the, that person would get killed. Right. We, but we also orchestrated him getting killed. Yeah. We so, had a, we had a rat called rat. Yeah. And then our rat killed the, the non rat to make, you know, because he was supposed to be all right. Like, to me, that was one of the most chilling aspects. It's like, ah, oh, you know, there were so many diabolical tactics that they use where the film kind of just, you know, glosses over one scene here. There was like, no, but this is like, this is the, the struggle that Hampton was, was fighting against. Right. But, the the crazy thing with with having these conversations together is like every time we get to the end of one of these movies, we're like, there needs to be another movie about this, and then we get another movie, and it's like, no, that's not wasn't it. We need another movie about this, and it just goes on and on. It's like you know, you kind of wonder why there are so many movies about this era in history, and it's like so many of them keep just kind of missing the mark. I will say, like getting back to your point about Hoover, I think the one thing that's important about painting him this way was that there were. I know there was a lot of pushback. Um, after Selma and the way Johnson was portrayed. And Johnson is much more complicated a person because while he did do good things in the eyes of American history, he did a lot of shitty things as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hoover, I think, you know, you can say that he protected some of America's interests at home. Um, he did far, far, far more to keep. A, you know, a, a large section of America under under a boot. Portraying him with any kind of nuance that you would afford somebody like Johnson, I, at this stage of the game, I, I think is a disservice. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. If you can have, I don't know, how many films about the FBI and trying to think of other great JFK and whatnot, you can have several films. I mean, Fred Hampton. Like, there's this shouldn't be the only perspective. No, I mean, earlier this year, we've already learned that two movies about Malcolm X can coexist. Yeah. You mentioned in our talk about uh, the trial of Chicago 7 how the death of Fred Hampton affected Bobby Seale. We can now see that in comparison. Like, we can now see the way he was set up. Like, it's, it's, in that movie, I feel like it's short-shifted. Like, we really don't understand the fact that he was set up. We don't under the fact, the, understand the fact that he was, like, you know, in his own home. Would you say at least that this movie informs that moment, a, a, like, a little bit more than Aaron Sorkin had time to do? One side informs uh, the other on one thing, but then also ignores uh, the other. So... I think it gives it definitely if you were to watch trial of Chicago seven and then go to this film, you're going to have a, ah, moment. Okay. I understand where the pieces lay. If you were to watch this film first and then watch trial of Chicago seven, I don't know if you'd have that same effect. You might go, wait, what? So, Oh, he was, he was there. When when was that? Was that before? Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, again, I, I'm going to acknowledge once again, you can't cover everything. And I know this. Yeah, uh, but if if this is the the nugget of the story that you're going to tell, I'm fine with that. I just wish you dived a little bit more into the the Judas and the Messiah. The other thing we brought up in the 
Chicago seven conversation was we talked about the privilege uh, at play and how, you know, we see how Bobby seal is treated versus how we see all the Chicago seven treated like, namely they keep going back to this safe house in Lincoln park on their own reconnaissance. Um, this movie takes that one step further. And, you know, you can see the difference between how Nixon's America prosecutes white insurrectionists and how it, prosecutes black insurrectionists specifically saying the latter need to be killed like we cannot put them on trial we cannot lock them up they need to be silenced for good and if nothing else i think this movie really hammers on that point and makes everybody understand it in no uncertain terms if you think about some of the stuff that they were really going after the breakfast program you know Mm -hmm. they didn't want them feeding black kids because they said, well, that's going to be a, a training ground for essentially breeding, breeding terrorists. And I was like, no, they, they were putting a, a need in the community. Like a lot of the things that the black Panthers have put in place in terms of um, the breakfast programs is essentially now what we consider what before and after school programs, like yeah. every community planning has, now is what we would community call planning. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, it started because they were doing this. They saw a need, they met it, like how they approached healthcare and all that stuff was considered a threat. So them going after those organizations, trying to lock everything down, them burning their office, you know, after the investigation, just lighting it on fire in the plane today and be like, well, it went up. We don't know how it happened, even though they're holding the, the gasoline yeah. canister. Like they, there was a lot of blatant um, brutality in it. And I guess just, there's a lot of things in it that people will watch and can, will identify with, today mm-hmm. because if you really think about the Panthers were Senator Martin Luther King considered like a terrorist organization in Trump's America, what was Jeff Sessions? One of the first things he did as attorney general was put black extremist groups as the, the number one threat in America, right? They were high on the, the list. That was Jeff Sessions mission was to eradicate that. But yet you look at who really ended up, doing the, the most recent domestic terrorism yeah. in America, it wasn't the black extremist groups. Yeah. You know, they weren't the ones calling to demanding the head of the, the vice president. Right. But a lot of those things still permeate today. So I, I again, the film, I think does a, a solid job of, of showing that inequality. I think the other thing that this movie does really well um, in a strange way, like I don't think it was necessarily what this movie was out to do, but it does it, um, is that this is a story about the lies that we tell ourselves, like why we do what we do, whose side we'd have been on. You look at somebody like Bill O'Neill and why he did it. You know, did, did he do it to help his country? Did he do it, you know, like as, as the, the G-man would have suggested that that's what he was doing? He was doing a, a good? Or was he doing it just to save his ass? You know, did he consider Fred Hampton a threat or the Panthers a threat? Or did he do it just to spare himself from jail? And the thing is, is that not only does he have to continually tell himself this within the course of the story, but then he has to keep telling himself this lie for the rest of his life. This is the kind of thing that affects this entire conversation to this day. You know, do you believe that the other side is wrong? Do you believe that people who are being oppressed uh, have put them in pos- themselves in position that they should be oppressed? Or 
are you really afraid of giving something of yourself up? I think in the, the context of, of this film, it is very much a lie O'Neill is, is telling himself because you get several moments early on where he's like, yeah, these guys are, are pretty harmless. Like if it, there's that one amusing scene where he's trying to hit on the girl during one of the um, knowledge sessions and they force him to do push-ups. And then he yeah. goes back to Mitchell and says, they're pretty much terrorizing me. <laughs> they don't i don't they don't really care about america terrorizing america they they're more interested in terrorizing me and you know you get a lot of those moments but at the end of the day he's out for himself yeah. and i i think you can say that in many ways o'neill is the embodiment of of our society nowadays where people are are out for themselves more than others so they're comfortable in telling themselves the lie if as long as it keeps them happy and, and healthy, you know, without really thinking of the the people that are getting impacted by it. It's it's a lie that we are seeing constantly and that people are going to the point where they're voting against their their, their best interest. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you look at we'll use a recent example because you know we're not gonna I won't talk about the pandemic, but we're you look at Texas. <clears throat> They had bad weather and their power grids because of the infrastructure went down. People were cold, starving. Some people died. And their leaders basically said, it's the Green New Deal. It's, it's all these other things. It's not that we've spent years deregulating and telling you that deregulating is the best way. Mm-hmm. You know, like you... I just, I, I look at the way how our world is, and we have it up here in Canada as well. There's a lot of lies that, as a country, Canada has told itself about being a warm, multicultural, we embrace everybody without acknowledging the past of like segregated schools, the government laws, the way how our policing up here is problematic as well. Like, there's a lot of lies that we tell ourselves and you know, this film makes you reflect on that. You know, there's the joke from Seinfeld that it's not a lie if you believe it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think sometimes I think that's becoming less and less of a joke that, you know, if you lie to yourself enough, maybe, you know, you become like O'Neill and you become like Mitchell and you just, you buy your own deceits. Yeah, but I think, I, I think we're farther along in on that track than we want to acknowledge. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, I, I hate to say it cause I know we all use it, but social media, man, <laughs> social media has like Twitter and Facebook are the term echo chambers is even, I'll even use Instagram. Instagram is like the, the more, you know, and some people would say it's like the happier alternative, but Instagram also does a wonderful job of creating a false persona. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it creates a, a level of fakeness in everyone's life and the way how they, they portray themselves. And I, I don't see how we turn away from the path that we are on. Uh, we're, we are seeing, cause we're seeing it now. This is a film about politics and, and in, enforcement and suppressing voices. And we are seeing now at, at the highest levels of government 
that li- lies are being told open openly. Yeah. And people will say, um, no, nah, f- the facts over here. So they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm quite down. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to believe the lie. I think that is baked into this movie. And that is one of the things that this movie does well, even though the fact like, you know, we've kind of come down on the fact that it does a whole bunch of other things, not so well. Um, it really mm-hmm. does hammer home the fact that you can only lie to yourself for so long before you're going to screw something up royally. Well, we end our um, reviews here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. If you could take a souvenir from uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, what would it be? Um, My souvenir would actually be the scene where um, O'Neill first meets Mitchell. And it's just after he's been arrested and the opening sequence where, where he's attempting to steal this car is, is wonderful. But the reason why this particular scene is my souvenir is because they ask him O'Neill point blank. Like, why would you even be foolish enough to impersonate an officer of all the things? Like, why don't you just go and steal the the car straight out? And he said, um, he uses a line of something like a, a badge is, uh, was it a badge is scarier than a gun. Yeah. Uh, because he says, because a badge signifies that you have an army behind you. Yeah. And that that kind of stuck with me throughout. Yeah. Like, that's a, a really great line because it, it speaks a lot of truth. Uh, my souvenir is far more frivolous. Um, there's, uh, I think, three scenes where O'Neill and Mitchell, when they have their little info sessions, they do it at a Chicago steakhouse. I just want to go to that steakhouse. I haven't been to dinner in almost a year. <laughs> you know, I haven't paid somebody else to cook me a good steak in a while. So uh, I'm, it's it just, and I, the way Lakeith Stanfield is eating that steak, he just makes it look so good. Um, it's, it's, it's that kind of like old fashioned steakhouse, like wood paneling, dark lighting, kind of, you know, it's, it's the sixties. So people are smoking cigars. I want to go there. Um, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Uh, Courtney Small, what do you give Judas and the Black Messiah on a scale of one to four? I'm going to give it two and a half. Okay. I'm warmer on it than you. Um, so it's kind of funny because I think we flipped from the Chicago 7. Um, I'm going to give it a three. Um, just I, I think I'm, I'm more enamored by the performances. Like I, I am at the point in my life where I will watch anything that Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are in, and which is good because they're yep, often in same. stuff together. I'm seduced by their performances, um, whereas you're looking past that into the, into the meat of the matter. Um, hey, maybe you think that both of us are being far too kind on this movie. Maybe you think that we're being too hard on this movie. Let me know what you think. Uh, Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter uh, or Facebook, all the usual places. What do you think of uh, Judas and the Black Messiah? But for now, that is episode 255 of the Matinee Cast, and I'm so thankful that Courtney could come back and talk about another movie. Come on back. We're going to we're turning it over in short rest again, and then we'll get back on schedule Monday, March 8th for episode 256, where we will be discussing, I'm not sure yet, possibly Minari, possibly St. Maud, possibly Test Pattern, possibly something altogether different. Courtney still writes both on uh, Cinema Access every now and then and that shelf every now and then and hosts the Changing Reels podcast about representation, inclusion, and diversity in film. Uh, you said you're taking a break. Do you know when the next, what the next one's going to be about when it drops after your break? Mm. No, it's going to be a surprise. Ah. I meant to say. Surprise, yes. <laughs> well, they're, they're, uh, your show's going to be a surprise and my show's going to be a surprise. It's a great <laughs> time for surprises. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, they can follow me at, at Small Mind. 
That's, that, that, was, that was incredible branding, like right from the get-go. You're <laughs> bloody genius, Courtney. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in the usual places, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Stitcher Radio, Apple. You can also find them in some new places, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Judas and the Black Messiah can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email Ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And of course, there's Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? No, it's a pleasure being here. It's always great discussing films with you. And again, the performances are great in Judas. I just, I just wanted a little more. I just want a little more. I mean, the sick thing is we're in this spot now where there's a lot out there to watch. Like, you know, the, the, the on-demand... Uh, gates have been opened so we are flooded with your Minaris and your Nomadland and you know all this other stuff if, if this had come out in like November when we were kind of a little bit more starved I would have been all over it but now it's like you, you, got, you gotta choose your time wisely yeah exactly there we go for Courtney I'm Ryan we'll see you at the next